Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. Long-time listeners of this show will know that I am deeply interested in the infrastructure that allows creative work to happen, whether that's the administrators who facilitate a particular culture or the publishers who create platforms for content dissemination. I'm in many ways not just interested in the work itself, but the context that allows that work to happen. One of the complaints you often hear in design publishing is the lack of venues for discourse. And one of the reasons there's a lack of venues is that there's little money behind these operations. Publishing in many ways has never been easier and it's also never been harder. The tools to make a website, to make a book, are easily accessible to almost everybody, yet the infrastructure to support these projects can feel non-existent. Who will pay for it? How is it funded? How will it sustain? It's these questions that I wanted to ask my guest today, the publisher, editor, writer, and curator, Frake Lama. At the end of 2022, Frake started Set Margins, a new publishing venture that he describes as part publisher, part network, and part platform for production to disseminate voices from the margins. In just a little over a year, they've published some of my favorite books in and around design that I'm sure Scratching the Surface listeners would be excited about, like Diagrammatic Writing by Johanna Drucker, Ian Lynham's new book, The Failed Painter, or Silvio LaRusso's What Design Can't Do, which we just featured on the Scratching the Surface site. Prior to Set Margins, Frake was the co-founder and director of the nonprofit art and design space and publisher Anomatope, based in the Netherlands, where he helped publish a great collection of design books over the years. Frake is someone who knows how to bring people together, he knows how to get books made, and he knows how to get those books in front of people. So in this conversation, Frank and I talk about how books are made, both formally and economically. We talk about his role as publisher and what he is trying to do with set margins. We talk about how publishing is like curating. We talk about the politics of bookmaking and why we're still drawn to printed matter. Speaking of the infrastructure of publishing, this show is funded and made possible by listeners like you. For the last five years, we've run a Patreon that helps support the show. Members get bonus content each month. If you like what we're doing here, if you're able to support this work, I hope that you would join us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up. We offer monthly and yearly subscriptions starting at $3 a month. That's patreon.com slash surface podcast. It truly helps keep the show going. Thank you so much for listening. And here's my conversation with Frank Lama. I thought we could start by talking about the name Set Margins, uh, the name of your sort of newish, I guess, kind of publishing thing that we can we can talk about what that is also. But let's talk about the name for a second, Set Margins, because, you know, that word margins has a very clear double meaning, um, you know, sort of margins in page layout and, and book design, but also margins as in, uh, you know, working from the margins, thinking about people sort of outside of the center, uh, practitioners, workers, um, thinkers who are sort of 
outside of mainstream thought. And it seems like that word margins and that sort of double meaning is important to you. I'm wondering if you could talk about this name set margins and specifically that word margins and sort of how you think about that and, and why that's a sort of critical part of your work. Well, aside of the two uh, aspects that you already mentioned, you know, uh, setting the margins more graphically and uh, the marginal, so to say, mm-hmm. I also kind of like it as a name. You know, we you also have the name set, and then so I could introduce myself. Hi, I'm Set Margins. You know, I kind of like that. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, to to return to uh, your question, which is a more layered answer, which is more interesting. Uh, of the margins um yeah I, I like setting margins also to really uh kind of speak up for the margins and not to have them stay in the margins per se you know but the margins are just a field where where much relevant stuff is happening which is often underrepresented uh unheard um speculative off in whatever kind of way and uh, that's a that's a terrain that I'm drawn to somehow, and um, that I'm curious for and want to to kind of mediate. You know, in the end, I, I started out as a curator very much, which is a mediator. So I kind of like this mediating position, this uh, position to to offer services and mm-hmm. to help people articulate that in one way or another. Yeah, I have so many questions just based on what you said there and i sort of described set margins as a publishing thing i think in that first question and on your website you you write as a support structure a platform for production a network and a publisher set margins is here to frame current impulses from the margin with particular focus for communication forms of cooperation and involved politics set margins delivers critical experiences, discourse, and dialogue. I'm I'm really interested in the first part of that, that sort of description. You're a support structure, a platform for production, a network, and a publisher. Yeah, what, yeah. Uh, what does that look like in practice? Can you sort of describe what set margins is or how you think about those different components? Yeah, a, a mouthful of, uh, of kind of uh, arty <laughs> vocabulary, you could say. <laughs> Well, yeah, that, okay. that's the way to kind of introduce what you're doing. And then people will take out of that whatever they read, of course. Uh, but, but it kind of covers a lot of the aspects. Um, yeah, support structure. Support structure, I find that a nice word because it's, uh, it, yeah, you know, I, I can offer different services to people. Of course, there's the uh, entry as a publisher you have to distribution. Uh, in various channels, uh, but there's also editorial support, support in um, in, in process management or, or process coordination or advice or whatever, because I've made books, I've made a lot of books and kind of know how these kind of dynamics uh, are in between the different uh, players involved. But it can also be more more artistic, if you will, more content based. Uh, I can, yeah, help writing. I'm not a really good proofreader or um, <laughs> a copy editor because I'm not really good at grammar and stuff. But uh, and and not that much interested for it. I think it's just a really costly thing, which is often kind of yeah pushing budgets to a limit where yeah uh-huh. whatever you could discuss the efficiency of that, but. Um, 
Yes, yeah, so, so so it's a support structure in that that wide sense. You know, I, mm-hmm. I definitely also have experience in print management uh, with uh, lots of specs and so forth. I started doing graphic design now recently, so I also know a little bit more now about the practice of graphic design. So yeah, that that can be helpful. So therefore, it's also a platform for production. The second thing in that uh, mouthful uh, list. Um, uh, it's a platform for production of that margin of whatever whoever is is brought in or comes uh, comes about, and of course, yeah, a network and a publisher. And it's good to to also say that I'm really a publisher because sometimes people miss out on it and think, oh, well, what's this actually all about? Oh, it's publisher. Okay, publisher is clear. That's making books, right? Yeah, that's making books. Cool. I want to make a book, you know. Right. So it's also to kind of get that a little bit together. Instead of only having um, this, um... but yeah, I like the idea of a network very much. You know, a place where different people meet. Uh, yeah. Like I, I see every day in cross sales. You know, people buy Silvio's book and they also buy something else. You know, mm. and I kind of like these things happening. And um, yeah, so to 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 yeah, this is on on the kind of consumer end, yeah. but also evidently happening on a, on an artistic uh, level where where people come together through me often or possibly through me um as i kind of know them and think hey you should talk with this person because this is interesting for whatever reason you know you know i thought it was interesting that you said you know you're you, you know print production you know sort of like how to get money to make these books you you don't really think of yourself as an editor. You you do some design work and, and, you know, it sounds to me like publisher is sort of like the overarching way that you could sort of like describe what you do. What is that? When you call yourself a publisher, what does that, what does that actually mean? Can you talk a little bit about like what you're actually, how you are actually sort of helping people who are wanting to make books? Well, you know, it might mean different things to different publishers. But to me, more more practically speaking, uh, it, it really starts out from either an idea or something, an initiative that I take myself or content that I have myself or content or stuff that other people uh, come up with. And then we look at uh, finances, you know, uh, how can we make this work financially speaking? Uh, in terms of uh, costs uh, for the production phase, in terms of uh, returns out of sales. Uh, How can we play this about, so to say? Mm. Uh, But the first question is always really content. You know, what does the content uh, push for? How can we work out of that content? Um, So it's often the kind of, and that's where where I'm... uh, yeah, uh, an editorial advisor in most cases. Mm. Uh, so it can be more or it can be less, depending also on the qualities of the people uh, with whom I work. And, and, you know, if I initiate something myself, it's evidently way more uh, based on my own uh, kind of uh, creative uh, flow. Right, but, right. Um, yeah, with others, it could be that, that there's other people who, who are really good at it. Or it could be that uh, that I'm a little hesitant and have to step in a little more and, and see how I deal with that. That's always a little tricky thing as well. Out of the actual content, I work towards the form 
and uh, the object and uh, what that kind of ties together. So, and in that, there's a lot of different layers. You know, there's there's not just the the, the layer of the experience of the book or the graphic uh, vibe of the book or the yeah uh, the, the kind of content transfer. Uh, but there's also a kind of a publishing uh, layer, you know, what works in terms of uh, reception in the different markets, mm-hmm. what works in terms of uh, maybe academic qualities or less academic qualities. Right. So all of these layers are often a little hidden. Um, you know, many books really grow out of a collaboration between a graphic designer and uh, and an artist or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then uh, you might miss out on a few of these other components as well. Um, so, for instance, financially speaking, in terms of returns, you know, what what can you expect out of returns? What can you do with that op- with, with these opportunities? Uh, in terms of editorial choices, uh, how does uh, the the kind of audience? audiences um and the different markets how does it uh, how can that be reflected in the in the type of book that you make you know and in the editorial choices which are reflected in writing which are reflected in the shaping of the content and the dealing with the with the different spaces within the book object so to say yeah you know of course uh, the the more people are involved and the more horizontal things become the more endless they become and the more uh, costly most of right. all they become. And I right. call it endless because it can be really annoying when it's, when it gets uh, endless, <laughs> uh, especially because many of the projects I'm doing have a really low budget, you know, and, uh, and then people get annoyed. And uh, so it's also yeah, a challenge to see how to avoid that and how to, to kind of, yeah, um, manage that. With, with the different people uh, involved. And in many cases, I'm not the commissioner in a way because I don't show up with the work. So I'm not the author. I don't have the author rights, I feel. Right. And I don't have uh, the money per se. You know, I can invest, I can co-produce, but I'm not doing that if I feel like the, the team is, or yeah, you know, there has to be, um, uh, I have to feel good about the, 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 the results, you know, that we could uh, create. I, I want to come back to to the questions of sort of that structure and process and budgets in a second, but I want to go back to something you said earlier about set margins also being a network uh, and that, you know, people will go and they'll buy, you know, Silvio LaRusso's new book, What Design Can't Do, and then they'll buy something else. And you're sort of putting these different publications in dialogue also. You've been around, you, you opened set margins like two two years ago about? A little, a little yeah, under two years ago. Uh, I think I started in something like September, October last year. So okay, uh, a year and a quarter. Okay, a quarter okay. How do you think about what makes a set margins book a set margins book? You you publish things about graphic design. There's art. I look at the tags on your website. There's anthropology. There's sort of. Uh, politics but they all sort of feel like they are in dialogue with each other this is this is an old metaphor but i think of you as you know it's like a record label it's like there's there's the individual artists there's the individual authors but there's also set margins i know what i'm going to get when i get a book from you how do you think about that i i hope it's true and i think it's reflected in in different uh, aspects 
Mm -hmm. um, I think it's reflected in content in the sense that much of the content that I produce is uh, rather practice-based. Mm. Uh, the content itself, it's kind of uh, culturally progressive, I would say. Well, yeah, so, so, so it's the content itself, uh, which is sourced by many different people. But these people also uh, come to me because they feel comfortable, you know? Mm -hmm. So that, that's already a kind of self-selective uh, thing often. Uh, so that, that's the content itself. Then you have the editorial framing, the way that I approach books. I try and be generous uh, in, the, in the editorial, so the textual tones, in the editorial layers that you can apply within a book to kind of, yeah, narrate it, so to say. Uh, from back cover to title to uh, introduction and whatever. These are things that I uh, find really important and spend a lot of time uh, doing. Um, I'm often just a kind of blunt, naive outsider uh, <laughs> in this. Yeah, because I cannot, uh, I cannot dive into all projects really hardcore in depth, you know. So I right. know about structures and how to organize this. I suggest things. I ask questions, you know. And then it's up to others to kind of confirm because they can can kind of authorize, can validate the content, and they can say, well, what you're saying here is bullshit. No, it should not move like that because it's it's like this. And then I drop it, you know. Right, right. But, but these kind of things, these conversations uh, help, and I think uh, these kind of editorial aspects are reflected in the books that are made. Uh, even though it might be kind of hidden. But yeah, the most evident thing I could say about that is, is you know, the amount of titles that I that I uh, uh, wrote over the years that I kind of made over the years, or the, the, just the titles and the subtitles, for instance, or the amount of back cover text that, I, that I've written over the years is just crazy. And often it's not written uh, on the back, uh, in the colophon or anything. But uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a huge uh, part of my voice, I guess, in that, and my approach in that, uh, in how I kind of uh, also uh, uh, yeah um, respond to 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 back cover text that's that other people write or so. So it, it's that that's another layer, the editorial, and then there's design. You know, the right. the, the, the 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 packing, how it all comes together. And uh, to see what kind of spaces are available within the format of the book, uh, what kind of spaces we might need, you know, would it be useful to have another flap? What does that flap do to the content that we want to transfer? What does that flap do to the to the book as an object? Uh, can mm -hmm. we also do that differently? Uh, what kind of formats are possible? Uh, does the budget allow for that? You know, all of these things um, kind of come together. I'm wondering how much you think about your role at Set Margins as curatorial. You mentioned that you you come you know you were a curator before, but it, the the way you just described that that feels curatorial to me also. Um, yeah. How do you sort of draw on that background when you're you know working on on books and sort of thinking about what makes a Set Margins book a Set Margins book? I think you know you can be. Uh, 
like like you have different kind of designers you know you have designers which are more editorial based some are more sculpturally uh, mm. sculptural qualities you know there's 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 also a, a range in in in, in specificities that that designers can have and i think um uh, all that, that I also grew in my awareness of what design can do, for instance, mm-hmm. and I grew into my knowledge of what a, a, a book and its specs can do, uh, almost as you know, as you have spaces in a museum or so that you can fill with a show, and uh, and that leave opportunities to to place a, a text on a wall or to put a sign somewhere or to have a kind of audio thing or whatever you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. so there's there's always this kind of and i i feel um in the end i my, my background is way more academic i would say so uh i'm more content driven so it's it's, it's about my in the end, it, it, it's about the, the content should should come across. You know, it should right. not be the design should not have the primacy, but the design is is a means. Um, you know, one of the best compliments I, I got on my books is, "Hey, your books are so anarchist, but they look so good." You know, I kind of <laughs> like that. But people once said that to me. Yeah, uh, and I felt like, yeah, I'm doing something good here. Uh, so yeah, uh, so, so I, I, I guess I have a kind of sensitivity to to the different ends in that, and that's also why I'm not really uh, a full-on content uh, publisher, but also mm-hmm. not full-on um, uh, uh, art visual content uh, publisher. I guess you know I'm kind of in between, and then. Yeah, I, I try to uh, kind of politicize stuff as well, and and try to take on the political responsibility uh, on as much levels as possible in doing that. So yeah, the, the, these things kind of come together. Maybe it makes me think of something else that I'm I'm sort of curious about how you think about audience or readers or community that happens around these books. And I'm the reason I'm asking that is I'm thinking about that line that someone told you that your books are very anarchist, but they look good, which feels like such a great description of, of your books, actually. And so many books that are about the margins or come from the margins can feel esoteric. They can feel obscure to people who are not familiar with yeah. those discourses or those dialogues. And you've said a couple times that you want to bring the margins, you know, back into the center or into the center. And how do you think about that balance of like readers who are already primed for this content or this design or this subject, but then also doing that in a way that can invite others in that cannot be something that is sort of off putting and closed, but open and generative the way you sort of described your, your editorial process. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot of uh, divides within our societies, you know, uh, cultural divides. Uh, so, um, for instance, one of the big aspects in the, the recent political campaigns for, for the elections here in the Netherlands was also a kind of undertone, which was uh, against the woke kind of vibe, you know, mm-hmm. felt threatened by the woke kind of vibe. And I think that is partially because... Uh, uh, woke was considered uh, uh, really also as a means, but you cannot enforce that as a means. You know, it's an end, and then you have to to see how you can 
uh, create more support for that end mm. with, with the means available. You know, you cannot just impose something to people. It just it goes too fast. You know, if they're, if they're not familiar with, with any of that, if they're not open by nature or by, by background or something, which many people are, you know, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, then you have to kind of uh, massage it in in a, in a gentle manner, and uh, so I think that that that's really important. So I'm not writing to please uh, woke people, you know. <laughs> you know? Right. I, right. In a way, I, I I don't really care about that at all. With all respect, uh, what I care about is getting these kind of voices also uh, available to a wider audience. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not here to to print 200 books that I share with my friends. Right. I, I right. want to see if I can sell it in uh, in 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 editions of a few thousand, if possible, by kind of uh, playing all the opportunities that are that are available in printing, and see where where we end up. You know, and yeah. uh, of course, it will always be the the, the kind of um, direct audiences that will support it most you know that's that that will be my direct audience but even for them you know like for me it's nice to have a kind of clear introduction and mm-hmm. not to to have to you know if you don't have a text on the back cover and if you have some kind of really weird cover and there might be really good stuff inside but yeah you have to browse through the book uh, for at least 15 minutes yeah you know fuck that i'm not i'm, I'm not going to do that Right, right. It has to right. be really convincing. I want to. I want to know what I'm. What I'm getting. We are already losing a lot of time. We are already heavily underpaid. All of us, you know. Right, right. Uh, so why would we mystify ourselves? That's kind of the left uh, uh, killing itself by by endless bullshitting, and and that's, that's something that I deeply regret. And and so that comes through through visual design through back cover text through subtitle all these sort of little things that you were talking about earlier that is your way to sort of you know that's that's what i try to do and what i what i try to to urge and promote and and do with the people i'm working with and uh but but it's vulnerable it's difficult you know my position is also kind of uh yeah as i was saying before i'm kind of blunt in this as well and i'm not yeah, you know, I'm not fully in, I'm not fully out or whatever. Right. But but yeah, you know, I, I kind of like that position and think it's it's good, you know, but it's difficult to to uh, make things work and see what can be done and what can be done. And there's always risk, you know. Yeah, let's let's talk about that difficulty <laughs> for a second, actually, because, you know, something that's that's so clearly very important to you and to, to sort of the set margins ethos is this idea of transparency, this idea of sort of where the money's going, how how people are getting paid, making sure people are paid fairly. Um, you know, you've written before you had this great line, making a book work is a financial question as much as a design or an editorial one. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the value of that transparency about having a page on your website that outlines how much money things cost, where, where things are going, what the con, you know, the fact that there are sometimes not contracts. Can you sort of talk about how that structure came about and why it's important to sort of communicate that? 
Well, um, many of the projects I'm uh, realizing are uh, with uh, really low budgets, mm. you know? So, um, so you have to see what you can do, what you cannot do. What is a fair payment based on the budget available and the kind of returns we could end up having with the book? Which is, again, another reason to see if we can uh, make books that sell better because then you can get more results, have a lower cost price, have more returns, you know, or things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where to, to do that fair. Also because, as I always like to do, I'd like to have books that have a relatively low sales price because then it's accessible in uh, areas where right. people have less money or, or for students who have less money and stuff. I find that important. But that's that's another aspect. To return to, so basically there's two phases in the in the making of a book. There's the production phase where you have to see, you know, what are the costs? There's the cost of of print. There's the cost of design. There's the cost of a proofreader. There's the cost of a copy editor. There's the cost of authors and so on. And see what what that might be in an ideal situation, in a a DIY situation. Um, See what what you can strip down when needed. Uh, See what you can capitalize with uh, exploited labor, so to say. Uh, when needed, uh, see what people are willing to do, and uh, and and then there's the second phase uh, of of the actual. You know, once a book is is uh, realized, uh, then then you also get returns, and then you can consider. You know, if these returns are if the indication of returns is good enough, you can consider to to kind of uh, take a risk in the production part, in the first part. Hmm. Um, just to kind of, uh, yeah, because, because you feel like, you know, this is going to work, you know, like we had with Silvio, that was really, we we really paid for it ourselves. So Silvio invested a lot of money. I invested some money. I invested some labor. Silvio invested evidently a crazy amount of labor. Uh, but we both feel like the book is going to pay off. You know, and uh, so, uh, and I think that's also entrepreneurship, but it's also knowledge of how to make that work. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it's kind of precarious. It's disrespectful in the sense that you're not sure of what you will be paid and not sure if you will be paid in a kind of fairly way or not at the end. But that's just all you can do, you know, and push the stuff. And why do you push the stuff? Because you feel you have to, you know? And we're not going to sit on our asses and wait until we get uh, tons of money by some kind of rich uh, whoever uh, (laughs) uh, to to write how rich people should spend their money, so to say, because that's in a way also what we're doing often. Um, (laughs) But uh, but yeah, we're just going to start it ourselves and see where we end up. And, And that's entrepreneurship. But it's also a balancing act on on a really precarious line, you know. So Silvio yeah. has his te- teaching positions, but there's many artists who, who, yeah, who are trying to survive, you know. And then if they want to pay a, a graphic designer fare, if they want to pay a copy editors and whoever fare, you know, then costs are adding up. Who's going to pay for that if the book will not sell much, you know? Right. Uh, Yeah, you know, then you have to have funding. But if there's no funding or if funding uh, comes out late while you have to do a lot of work in advance, 
you know, that then you have to acknowledge that and see how you deal with that. And I think that is something that is often really uh, underestimated and can lead up to projects that kind of don't reach the the, the uh, potential that they might have, you know. And right. I think that that's really a pity. And uh, I want to address that all the time. And I want to make that clear. It's so interesting to sort of hear how different that's your structure of working is from, you know, if someone were to go to like a big publisher or a mid-sized publisher where you might get an advance, you know, they have all that sort of these teams, et cetera. I think, you know, there, there's pros and cons to that also, clearly. I, I'm wondering like what, I, I hope this, I don't want you to answer this like a sales pitch, but like what, can, can you talk about the value that comes from that precarity like what to me it seems like you know there's there's this sort of growing network of small publishers like yourself who are doing really interesting work that these big publishers would never be able to do can you talk about that a little bit or sort of how you see yourself within the larger publishing sort of infrastructure i don't know exactly what the difference is per se uh, although much you know the publisher cost because there's also always publisher costs you know costs of distribution costs of storage etc especially when starting set margins i have also invested a lot not just in in building the infrastructure and paying for a new website and whatever but also in uh, uh, printing books or in, right. in new titles and so so i can also in a way that that's a bit like an advance you could say mm. um uh, or it, it's an advance of sorts um but yeah, I mostly like to work with uh, with royalties through royalties, mm. and um, so first we have to see how we can uh, afford the production of the book, and then we can see uh, how we deal with the with the royalties and what the sales indications are, and the risks are. You know who takes the risks. Um, I think I might be different from many smaller publishers in that in, in that, that that i do take risk there as well that i do invest as well when i feel like it's it's legit i just have to mm. find some money somewhere um but but it's also different from maybe bigger publishers where uh where they they already give a kind of advance you know to, to right, right. get the author through the winter so to say uh, I'm not doing that because I also have to get through the winter first by selling some of the books, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I guess that's sort of what I was maybe thinking about when I asked that question is, you know, when when you get a big advance like that or medium, I shouldn't even say big advance. When you get an advance like that, you know, there's an expectation that a X number of books are going to be sold. And there are, you know, the the it, it seems to me that the market considerations... Uh, are much more in the forefront where when you are investing yourself, when the author is investing themselves, when the designers are investing themselves, they're the, you know, the pressure to sell is still there, but it is felt differently. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's like an interesting question, but there's something interesting there to me. Publishers uh, give an advance when they uh, have a good indication that it, that it's mm, yeah. uh, uh, safe to do so, you know? Mm-hmm. I also make my indications of sale. Right, right. Um, and these indications are included in budgets, sometimes more, sometimes less, or whatever. 
so they also uh, inform uh, the budget available. They inform how the book will be conceived. They inform the type of printer we can work with. They inform the kind of royalty percentage that uh, uh, um, uh, authors receive. Um, so in that sense, it's it's kind of similar, I guess. We've talked a, a bit throughout this conversation about the infrastructure that you have built up, the knowledge of bookmaking and book production uh, that you have and that expertise that you sort of bring to these projects. And a lot of that came from the, I guess, like 15 years or so that you were the, the director and chief curate, curator at Anomana, Anomatope, <laughs> I always struggle to say. And I'm wondering if you can talk about sort of what you learned from working at Anomano, Anomatope, uh, that was both a gallery and a publishing uh, infrastructure. What what sort of lessons from that project have you uh, embedded into what you're trying to do with set margins now? Uh, well, I started Anomatope in 2006 together with a friend of mine, graphic designer uh, Remco van Bladel. Uh, and I learned a lot also from Remco in, in you know, the, the, the qualities of design and, and what design can do. Yeah, I was always more of a political, uh, content-based, poetic, whatever guy, uh, curator. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, I, I can maybe the, the, the curatorial kind of inform my editorial way as well. Um, as Onomatope grew, um, because we started out making projects that also consisted, that, that also had a, a publication uh, along with them. Mm-hmm. So it was really a, a kind of curatorial endeavor with a book on the side, so to say, uh, which was very much, I would say, self-publishing because we didn't know anything mm. about publishing. We just made books in whatever right. form. right. And, uh, yeah, you know, editorially, um, uh, I learned a lot by doing and making mistakes, uh, made a lot of mistakes looking back on, on many things <laughs> I made. But uh, so, so that taught me a lot. And, um, yeah, you know, so and, and then over time, uh, we became a little bit more of a publisher as we started accepting more and more projects from the outside instead of only uh, doing our own projects where mm. I was kind of curator, initiator, fundraiser and whatever. Uh, and Onomatope also grew as a kind of organization to a kind of Kunsthalle uh, size in a way. So I became more of a director and and and, and supervisor, if you will, of uh, of, of stuff. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it learned me a lot about, uh, yeah, these different roles in the process It learned me a lot about the vulnerabilities It learned me a lot about the different dynamics in, in, in these processes, the opportunities in the processes, uh, my preferences in the processes, the moments where I should kind of, uh, uh be alert the moments where I can kind of loosen the, the strings. Um, yeah, so so that that's what I learned very much. So that's also a reason why I managed to to kind of put up set margins in, you know, as you were saying at the beginning, how long have you been doing it for two years now or whatever, but it's, it's only just a little more than right. a year. But I just know all, all the components of, of, of the works, you know, so I kind of know uh, how to lay it out. I know all of the the things I need to have of the infrastructure. 
and um, yeah, of course, I have a network, and, uh, and, yeah. and I have my own. I have I have a clear idea of of how I want to do it, and what I enjoy in doing that, and what I value in doing that. Um, and of course, that's always a little bit flexible, and and one project is different from another. That that's always different, but. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, I would not have been able to pull off uh, certain <laughs> audiences if I wouldn't have done uh, on a to pay for uh, yeah uh, sixteen and a half year or whatever it was. I I so admire what you do and how you how you do it because like you know I can't figure out if publishing and bookmaking has never been easier <laughs> now than in history or never been harder. Like it feels like it's both easier and harder to, to try to do what you are doing. And as you look back over your 15, 16 years as making books, how, how has that process changed? How has the, the sort of precarity of publishing and bookmaking um, evolved? Or have you noticed a, a, a change in uh, you know, that landscape? Well, it's really also that question in a way, your, your eventual question also very much connects to, to the thing you addressed a little before, you know, is it easy or, or is it harder? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of things have changed over the years. When I started in, in 2006, um, the, uh, the infrastructure of publishing was way and way and way less. And, and we, we started at the right moment, you know, because uh, the, the kind of independent art book fairs were rising, cheap mm. arts came about, internet, internet really came about, you know, so, so we could do a lot via the internet. And therefore, the kind of um, uh, basis for, uh, for, for marginal economy, so to say, uh, could also lift off and pick up. And that really grew over the years. And I think um, there's, there's much more awareness of, of, uh, of this culture now and, and the opportunities it holds. Yeah, I even yeah. saw a, a zine making workshop here at our local library here in the city last week. <laughs> oh, wow. Which is crazy. You know, yeah. I, I was making zines. Uh, I didn't know the word way before I started Onomatopoeia, the end of the 90s. I made a little, <laughs> and then I went to the coffee shop and made little poetry booklets that I sold, you know, as, as kind of zines as, I don't know, a 17, 18 year old guy. Yeah, nice. Uh, but I didn't know that it was called zine. And now, you know, because of internet, because this kind of culture is around, all the kids at, uh, at design schools know about zines. You know? <laughs> right. Right. And they are all uh, thinkers, and they're all uh, critically engaged. Yep. And uh, so, so that's also a, a big difference from students at the art school when I started as a curator, who were kind of politically lame, you yeah. know. Yeah. And um, uh, I was the first uh, person of of my age to call myself an independent curator here in Eindhoven, here in the city. Mm. Uh, and in the region, there was maybe one other other one, and <laughs> uh, and and now there is a school, you know, an MA for curating and writing. Yeah, you know yeah. what the fuck, you know, this stuff just grew. So <laughs> therefore, I think um, it got easier in a sense that uh, the landscape just uh, flourishes. Yeah. I would say the landscape flourishes, and there's a lot of uh, places where you can find. Uh, uh, a good basis to work yeah. out from 
but then to really get at a level where uh, where you can you know um, because anyone can make a little publishing venture but but to really make money out of it or to make it sustainable yeah you have to have uh, you have to have uh, uh, the infrastructure you have to have some experience you have to have the the capacity to to pull that off and I think you know that's not quite easy. You know, as I was saying, I could not have done this uh, after five years of onomatopoeia. I could not have done this maybe after seven years of onomatopoeia, but I could. I can do it now, and I'm. Uh, I can even get loans now, and you know, so I'm. I'm. Right. I, I'm willing to to take a, a, a entrepreneurial risk as well. Uh, even though I live really poor and whatever now, uh, trying to set <laughs> it up, but yeah. But, you know, uh, I think it's hard to, to really make it work. I think there's a lot of people, you know, because we're, we're, that was the first thing I thought when, when they started this uh, curatorial writing MA here in the city. What the fuck are these people going to do? Are they all just <laughs> going to write uh, scenes and share, the, uh, share it amongst them, uh, each other? And uh, I, I think that's really cool. And it's great that they're doing it and that, that they create more basis and therefore more of a market that, that, that becomes more visible and exposes itself at certain moments or whatever. But it, it could easily leave so many people disappointed, you know. Yeah. And that's also why, why a book like uh, Afonso Matos is uh, who can afford to be critical. You right. know, this MA... Uh, final thesis that he wrote and that I saw on Instagram and just thought, hey, this looks really good. We should publish this. But why, why that is so also symptomatic of, of today's time, you know, and why it's interesting to have uh, a graphic designer like uh, uh, Kevin Loki design uh, from Montreal, uh, who has always been trying to, to push for a kind of uh, independent agenda in a design practice. Uh, to see how how he made his work and how and we're now going to publish his book, you know. So these kind of things are are really exciting and uh, really relevant now. I think I'm interested in what you were saying about sort of the the rise of the word zine and and that you know there's a zine workshop and everybody's making zines and and that that strikes me as as true to me also. Um, you know, I I was an undergrad graphic design student 15, 16 years ago. Um, and I was being taught that print was dead, that everything was going to be digital. You know, everything is online. The, the web is going to sort of take over. I'm teaching in a program now that has a big emphasis on digital design and, and apps and user experience. But students want to make stuff that's printed. They want to make stuff that's tactile. They want to make stuff that you can hold. They want to make stuff that's countercultural and politically engaged, just like you're talking about. And I'm wondering if you could, what your thoughts are on sort of the continued value and relevance of printed matter, whether that's the book, the pamphlet, the zine, um, why that has continued to be uh, a form that is attractive to people. Yeah, no, it, it's a it's a good question. You know, I, in a way, I'm also just a little conservative uh, in that end. You know, I've made this book about tactility, yeah, that uh, when I questioned, you know, well, what is this myth about tactility? Why are we drawn to printed matter? Yeah, it is the kind of biopolitical thing that just manipulates us to kind of sniff and 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 uh, you know, like yeah. we want chocolate, we want chocolate, and we want books. 
just to to kind of you know uh, fetishize ourselves and saturate ourselves with something i don't i don't exactly know but i do think you know in the in the basis of it it's about sharing and it's about uh communicating getting getting people together around stuff uh and see what it could do uh, so it's it's engagement it's solidarity it's uh curiosity it's uh, fragility in in opening up you know because mm-hmm. you show yourself in in a fragile manner as well um so I think these kind of things are uh, and, and uh, are are relevant to uh, I think uh, good people, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, will remain relevant. And um, yeah, I don't know, but but I don't really find that in a digital environment. But but I'm just really a kind of how do you say a digital uh, uh, digital asshole? I don't know what the name is again. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. naive, like you're naive about digital. Yeah. 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 Digital. Yeah. Not native, but naive. Yeah. So, so it's not my, my, my field, but, um, yeah, it also communicates differently. You know, when you sit together and, uh, uh, with someone face to face, it communicates different from, you know, uh, uh, something, uh, uh, that you can just spam and, and, and shout at people online anonymously. Yeah, I mean, I think what you said about solidarity is actually right. This idea of sharing and and sort of the the collective experience, I think, um, I think is right. Speaking speaking of books, I don't know how much time you have to read for pleasure uh, with with all the sort of work that you're doing. But what are you reading right now? There's a few books that I have um, that are kind of uh, on my table. Um, I have a book, what was it called again? Um, I don't know the title anymore, but it's about, uh, it's a kind of feminist take on, uh, metal culture. Oh, oh, interesting. Uh, kind of liked, it's, I think it's a book from Verso or something kind of, I always like, I'm, I'm drawn to, to metal music recently and, uh, Mm. all this death metal stuff from the Nordic countries, but then I, I kind of like it that there's this, um, feminist uh, vibe in it of course there's always these kind of theory things that i have uh, on my table but but uh, but i tend to scan it a little more than actively reading it i just ordered a kind of uh, what was it the colonial design book oh yeah it's interesting yeah uh, i'm interested for that you know the stuff that really kind of goes off because Dutch design is just really this kind of uh, uh, economic yeah. imperialist uh, bullshit kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, I use it, you know, because it also sells and whatever. <laughs> it, it's interactive to some people, you know. But yeah, but yeah it's also kind of bad in, 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 and uh, and kind of outdated, I hope. There's, there's also conversation about it, you know, should design become more amateurish again? Or, yeah. Yeah. You know, which I which I find interesting conversations as well. I myself, as a designer, I'm not a trained designer. Right. I'm not really uh, this damn skilled technical guy. But yeah, yeah I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, so what I'm reading, uh, and then there's a few novels. I like reading novels if I have time. This was a, this was such a great conversation. I think you're doing important work uh, in a really interesting way. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. It's just what it is. <laughs> And that was my conversation with Frank Bama. Our theme music is by Jeremiah Chu. The show is and always will be free thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you like what we are doing, I hope you consider supporting us and get some bonus content each month. You can follow us across social media at Surface Podcast. You can listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at our website, scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>